Welcome to Phrenesis, a show dedicated to issues in political philosophy. Each episode will take a close look at important essays and ideas in political and social thought, linking them to historical and contemporary debates, which is to say, finding where they are discussed in the footnotes to Plato. So welcome again to another uh, episode of the Phrenesis podcast. As always, I'm Brad Davis, joined by William Lombardo. And today we have a very special guest. It's a great uh, privilege and pleasure for me. My uh, undergraduate advisor, Professor John Hallsworth, assistant professor with term in political science at Lewis and Clark College in Portland, Oregon. Uh, and today we are going to be discussing... Um, an essay by Ralph Waldo Emerson, I think published first in 1841, uh, his essay, Intellect. Uh, so welcome. Thank you very much for joining us, Professor Hallsworth. Um, first, if, if there's anything uh, about yourself you, you want you want to briefly uh, mention, but also um, why, why, uh, why has Emerson been, been such an interesting uh, figure for you? And I know you didn't particularly choose intellect. Um, I, I, I chose this one out of a few options you proposed. But but what is it about this essay that that has always stood out to you? What what's so enrapturing about it? Uh, first of all, thank you for having me. It's a great pleasure to do this, and a pleasure to have an excuse to do a deep dive into an essay like this. Is we've got an, uh, some time on our hands and only about twelve pages. And one thing that I, I discovered. Uh, that I always discover when I read Emerson, and one of the things that always draws me back to him is the realization of how well his essays repay slow, close reading. That he's, and it's often surprising to people, I think, because when you think about the sorts of texts that you need to go through line by line and read slowly and carefully, oftentimes it's the dense analytic text. It's it's Kant, it's Hegel, it's it's where every sentence is sort of packed and playing an important role in the sequence of the argument or something like that. And Emerson, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a lovely essay, and it's the sort of thing you feel like your mind can almost wander a little bit while you read it, and, and, and then you sort of come back as, as you're reading. But actually, when you, you go through, I found myself reading this again slowly last night and pausing almost at every sentence and noticing something important that was happening in that sentence. And it's not because he's a philosopher like some of those others that you read in that way. There's something different about why his writing is important like this. But it's uh, the essay Intellect, I think, is uh, it was partly my choice, I guess. And it was it was on a short menu that I suggested, I suppose. And it's one that I, I, I'm, I think is extraordinarily interesting and underregarded um, in Emerson's uh, body of work. When you when they list the famous essays by Emerson, intellect doesn't usually get mentioned as one of them, though it's certainly it's, it's in the mix somewhere. It's in his first series of essays, as you said, published in 1841, and he publishes a second series in 1844. And those two series of essays are his, are along with a few of the addresses, famous addresses that he gave, uh, are, are really his most famous writings, and, and also the early work, Nature. Um, so it's, it's in a collection of essays that's uh, among his most widely read works. But people usually talk about a certain self-reliance is his most famous essay, People usually think of maybe the Oversoul or Spiritual Laws or uh, Experience are all essays that uh, get a lot of uh, play and a lot of attention. Intellect doesn't tend to get noticed or assigned as much, but there's a few reasons why I think it's extraordinarily important. Uh, for one, I think it corrects two important misperceptions of Emerson 
that sometimes lead academics and scholars to um, to sort of dismiss Emerson or think of him as an important literary figure, but maybe not an important philosophical figure. Uh, and one of those, those are the two misperceptions that I think people sometimes have of him. One is that he's an interesting source of, of inspiration and optimism, and he's, he's full of the you can do it kind of spirit, but that there's something maybe a little bit naive or a little hollow in that it's, it's, it's that it's more that it's not really grounded in any particular reason for believing in, in people. It's just sort of a source of telling you it's good if you think so. And I think there's actually far more heft to it. And I think uh, what you get in this essay is something that I think of as a kind of democratic epistemology, a, a, an understanding of what thinking is that helps explain why he thinks it's something that is within the reach of more people. Uh, the second reason I think it's important is that it can also, there's a, the second mis, uh, misperception that people have is that that epistemology is a fairly weak epistemology. It's an epistemology that's uh, rooted in intellect and basically says you can feel your way to truth. Uh, and there's a sense in which that might be true, but if we reduce it to the claim that just trust your gut, that's what's true. I don't think that is remotely what Emerson is saying, but what he is saying is that he's not saying that feeling it makes it true, but he's saying that if you don't feel it, you don't know it. If you don't have, if, if that, I think maybe the, the message that is most importantly at the heart of this essay is that thinking is not merely analytical. Thinking is experiential. And without the experience of it, which can only come through some trust of your instincts, what you have is a list of propositions that make something true, but not actual knowledge of what make, of, of its truth. Uh, if you don't have an experience of it, you don't know it. And I think that's an interesting rejoinder to people who want to reduce him to be just uh, the, the trust your gut theory of knowledge. I don't think that's quite what he's saying. But those are, those are among the reasons why I think this is, for me, a very important essay. It connects a lot of the dots in Emerson and gives some heft to a theory of intellect that is uh, drawn on in a lot of his essays in, in briefer ways. One thing that I don't have a lot of background in and didn't when reading this and Maybe maybe helpful as we dive into it is uh, who the addressee of the um, of the essay is, uh, which <clears throat> there's a maybe caricature of uh, American philosophy, especially in the 19th century, kind of isolated, doing its own thing, and. Uh, Emerson Emerson shows he knows what's going on on the continent in this, but but who who's he writing for? Are there any major philosophical figures who he has in mind and he's responding to here? Uh, you know, where in the flow of the history of philosophy say do do we place this? It's a it's a great question, and there's a couple of answers to it I think that are available. I mean, one is most literally he's writing for the public. Uh, and Emerson at this time, it, we might think of him as America's first sort of great public intellectual, because most of these essays, including this one, uh, most of these, I think all of the essays in these first two series, if I'm not mistaken, are essays that initially they're speeches. They're not, they're not um, initially published as essays. He went around, uh, mostly around New England giving the going to churches and town meeting halls and he would literally set up a, a table outside the building and sell tickets and people would come in and then he'd go in and, and give the address so these have been rehearsed multiple times and performed for 
uh, a public uh, a public audience, and then he uh, came later to uh, collect them and revise them and, and, and publish them in the form that we have them today. So I think certainly it's it's important to Emerson, who I think of as one of one of the maybe the greatest philosopher of democracy, the uh, the believer, the greatest, and by that I really mean the greatest believer in the extraordinary capacity for ideas, for experience, for intellectual self-reliance, more than more than any other kind of self-reliance of, of the common person, that he, he believed that uh, this is something that's within the reach of everybody. And most of the history of philosophy, uh, to whom he could be responding in a way, to most of the history of philosophy, that was almost preposterous, I think, the, the thought that uh, the philosophical life was somehow available to the common person. It's a very uncommon idea, and it's it's an, a very American and very democratic idea, I think. So I think he is writing for that public to inspire and to help them think, to, to inspire them to believe that they can, but also uh, there's a sort of paradox in it almost that on one hand, he's trying to show us how much is required of us in order to really be a thinker and, and what you have to sometimes be prepared to sacrifice in order to do it. And on the other hand, he's trying to tell us at the same time, and this is within your reach and you can all do this. This is something that's both hard and widely accessible. And so it's sort of interesting in that way. I think that this is much more speculative. So th that's the sort of historical fact we know about who he was literally writing and thinking for. I sort of suspect that when he was sitting uh, at his desk and composing these essays, though, that he wasn't thinking uh, about the strictly about the common person. I think he's also in conversation with the history of philosophy, but less the 19th century continent and more probably the ancient world. And, and you see at the, the very end of the essay, there's a kind of curious conclusion to the essay where he, he sort of wraps up the essay with one page left to go. And then he imagines these the band this band of thinkers, the Hermes, Heraclitus, Empedocles, Plato, Plotinus, Olympiodorus, Proclus, Synesius. He mentions all of these people from the ancient world that many of whom aren't really familiar. Some of them are, of course, very familiar to us. Some of them barely known or, or thought about anymore. But he sort of imagines them in a conversation with one another, and the rest of and those who, who learn from them or hear from them, kind of sitting and gazing in curiosity at the conversation that's going on over their heads. Um, and I think he's, I, I sometimes think he's imagining himself listening to them uh, and, and listening first before trying to contribute. What he suggests is that sometimes it's better to be, he writes at one point in this essay, silence is better, listening is better than speaking. Uh, we draw from others in that way. But I sort of suspect anyone who's writing something like this is also imagining himself in that band of thinkers a little bit. You're writing something that's meant to be in conversation with people long gone, but you're in conversation with them because they, before you wrote, they were in conversation with you. You were reading them and thinking about them and everything you are now and everything you're producing is part of that. But I don't know... And I guess there's a third audience that we can imagine as well, which is his contemporaries in Concord, Massachusetts. So he's he's um, in a there's a group of friends and acquaintances, Henry David Thoreau and Margaret Fuller and Nathaniel Hawthorne, and people with whom who were in his circle of friends and who sometimes were engaged in kind of almost quasi-utopian kind of experiments in collective living. And uh, though he had uh, he kept some of that at an arm's length. But I think he's he is he's in a circle of scholars and thinkers and artists, uh, and so they might also be sort of between the ancient world and the public. 
those are the people who are probably most likely the immediate beneficiaries of his thinking and the people that he's uh, he's in conversation with as he's as he's connecting those worlds. So you you had mentioned that sitting in silence and listening is, is something of value. I was very interested in this that <clears throat> normally we think of that as um, a a passive action of learning uh, from these greats when we're reading. And I suppose in a sense that it is still. Uh, passive but but uh emerson has this idea of a receptive intellect in here that um was was really interesting really really cool i uh sort of elevated the the status of of an audience of a a reader or listener to to shakespeare um and he has an acknowledgement that that thinking of any sort um is difficult and, and and valuable uh, and not just the constructive intellect, the genius of a poet um, of Shakespeare writing these, but but somehow being a member of the audience and listening uh, reflects the same same sort of humanity as the creation of the works, but also the in some sense the, the same same depth of intellect. Uh, he writes at one point um, perhaps if we should meet Shakespeare we should not be conscious of any steep inferiority no but of a great equality only that he possessed a strange skill of using of classifying classifying his facts which which we lacked and and again in comparison with one of his uh, uh, contemporaries he, he writes that that the the lived experience of the two of them had had the same sort of depth. Uh, Emerson just had a little bit more practice in putting it into words, and I I thought that democratizing element of it was was very beautiful. Um, but but it isn't just that um, the life experience is similarly uh, valuable. But the the receptive intellect and sitting there and experiencing art is just a is is a valuable act in its own. What was um, was impressive to me. I, I think you're right to connect those two passages. Uh, and and in Emerson, I often have this experience. You can almost pick two passages anywhere from Emerson at random, and you find the the, the continuity between them. But the thought about silence and and listening. And the thought about the being uh, perhaps meeting Shakespeare and finding where his equal, uh, two the two very interesting thoughts that I think are closely connected and exactly the way that you said they're connected in in the importance of the receptive rather than the constructive intellect. So he says in talking about silence, he says um, the ancient sentence said, "Let us be silent, for so are the gods." Silence is a solvent that destroys personality and gives us leave to be great and universal. And so the thought of silence as a solvent that destroys personality means it's it's not just silence. It's silence and receptivity. It, it's a silence that kind of calms the mind and calms our, our, uh, our immediate personal needs in a way that permits a great kind of receptivity, gives us access to some kind of what he thinks of uh, repeatedly throughout his writings as a kind of universal mind to which we all have some sort of access. But the the notion of, and it's interesting also that the silence is a solvent 
intellect, the way he begins the essay is by saying intellect is a solvent. It dissolves everything else uh, from, uh, let's say at the beginning, uh, intellect dissolves fire, gravity, laws, method, and the subtlest unnamed relations of nature. Uh, he suggests that, and, and among the other things that intellect dissolves is itself. It dissolves your prior experiences of intellect. You have intellect and then you have another intellectual experience and it dissolves the first one. And, and it's a sort of succession of moments. But the, the part about silence, I think it's a solvent as well because it allows you to, he suggests, sort of step outside of what's merely personal in yourself and have some, and commune in a way with something outside of yourself that's, that is, uh, uh, that is important or uplifting in some way. And so that idea of receptivity as a, a task that it, it requires a practice. It's not just sitting and keeping quiet and, and stuff will just pop into your head. It's clearing a mental space in which to be receptive to something outside of yourself. And if you can do that, then that is why I think he thinks that if we meet Shakespeare, we should not be conscious of any steep inferiority. There's the intellect, as you said, there's the intellect receptive and he says that's what thinking is. Our thinking is a pious reception, he says at one point. It's kind of putting the antenna out and letting this mysterious process by which things just pop into your head kind of happen to you and putting yourself in a position where that's going to happen because you're listening to someone or, or reading something. Um, but in relation to that, that's the thing he thinks everybody can do um, much more than they do now. The intellect constructive, that's Shakespeare, that's also Emerson, that's the great poet. And he says that's a something that may, that he's not suggesting we could all do that. We can't all produce, uh, picking up right from where you stopped reading, actually, he says, for notwithstanding our utter incapacity to produce anything like Hamlet and Othello, see the perfect reception this wit and immense knowledge of life and liquid eloquence find in us all. The point is, I couldn't write Hamlet. But when I read him, when I quiet myself and read Hamlet, or better yet, usually see a performance of it, it moves me and I feel it. And the thing that Shakespeare was reaching out of himself to feel and experience, I can reach out of myself to feel and experience. And there's something common in that. The fact that I couldn't write the, the poetry is not the important part. It's what we it's what we call genius, he says. The intellect constructive is, the, is what we give the name genius. But I think one of the things he's saying is genius matters a lot, a lot less than reception. The capacity to produce it, that's a quirky aspect of a few people out there who have some strange kind of skill or facility for putting words together. But if you can feel it, if you can experience it, the thought that's in Shakespeare's head is in yours. And we might be suspicious of whether we can do there. There's a lot of reasons to, to be un, uncertain that thoughts can be identical in that way to different thinkers. But certainly there is something when you have a powerful experience of reading Shakespeare or reading Plato or reading Emerson. When you, when you read Emerson and he's put the words down on the page in a certain way and you leave yourself receptive to it and you put the time and the intellectual focus, it repays that effort because something he put, it, he had a thought in his head. He produced this essay and he wrote it down in words in the best way he had to try to convey what it was he was talking about. And that's Emerson's genius. But when I read it, it's the important part of the experience is not knowing that Emerson thought this and that Emerson thought that. It's that when I read it, I'm having those thoughts. I'm not just knowing them and aware of them. I'm having those thoughts. And in that, 
what he's done in, in writing it in this way and what I've done in, in putting the effort in reading it is I've made myself in this moment Emerson's equal, even though I couldn't write this essay, or I've made myself Shakespeare's equal because when I read Hamlet, I feel it. And I think that is a... Uh, it's the kind of thing almost no one thinks about what's important about thinking, or at least I, I don't know. It's what I love about this essay is because I don't, is that I don't know where else in the history of philosophy, anybody has said something quite like this. I think it might be implied in a lot of places, but the thought that's what important, what is important is the reception and not just the, not the knowledge of here's what somebody thought, but the experience of the power of the idea. And, 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 and it's what, it, it's what makes a feeling or we might just say sort of subjective experience the crucial link to that impersonal idea that's outside of us there's something in the idea or in the thought that is impersonal and it's just out there in the universe but at the same time it's by receiving it into my subjectivity and having the idea rather than just knowing of it that I become the thinker who is their equal. But it, it, what to me, what that grounds is, I, I think of it as a kind of democratic epistemology. And it's not an epistemology quite in the traditional sense, because usually when we talk about epistemology, I think what we're talking about is something like epistemic verification. It's, it's how do we know that an idea is true? And I don't think Emerson is telling us how you know whether something is true. I think he's telling us how you know whether you know it and how we distinguish the knowing of it from the recognition that it is a thing that is known um and but and that's what makes this getting back to your question about sort of silence and associating um thinking with uh with passivity i i think one of the things he's telling us is that's a terrible mistake to associate thinking with passivity it is uh, absolutely as as most many of the great philosophers have said all the way back to aristotle it is a form of activity and it's one of the things that troubles me i think when i look at education today, we talk a lot about uh, active learning, the importance of active learning. And when you ask people, what does active learning look like in your classroom? Very often, it's some kind of exercise where we say, okay, everybody who thinks this, get up and walk to that side of the room. And everybody who thinks that, get up and walk to that side of the room. And now you're going to put yourselves in a line in order according to like something where like if, if it's considered active learning, because we get out of our seats and we go do something. And I'm not saying that can't be. There are times where I think that looks kind of stupid. And there's times when I think you're actually doing something interesting and that there's a use for those kinds of activities sometimes. But the thing I worry about is what it suggests thinking is, is a form of, because you're not moving while you do it, it's a form of passivity. And I think that's just a horrible mistake. Uh, what Emerson is showing us is the, that thinking is a form of activity and it is a vibrant and soul-changing form of activity. That's one of the things that I think is really powerful and important in this essay. I... I... <laughs> I don't have. Uh, I, I didn't have any trouble with the idea that uh, you know receptivity that leads to understanding is the uh, axis along which we're all equal. But I do think he uh, opens himself up to a little problem when he uh, when he seems to discount creativity as a, you know, something that can be used to justify even a kind of intellectual hierarchy, because it's one thing to say, uh, well, we all receive the world, the, you know, the world as, uh, you know, this, this whole body of a thing to be experienced in the same way, but he makes a big deal 
uh, of the the creations of other people, uh, which to, to you know to receive something like that, it seems that you uh, that creativity almost needs to be prior to that uh, that that receptivity. Um, that there's nothing to receive without the creative impulse or something like that, uh, or that we know we can't create Othello for Hamlet, but we can understand it. And it seems like that that creativity is not nothing. Um, and uh, you know, I'm wondering what stops him from. Uh, I know Nietzsche was influenced by Emerson, uh, and 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 uh, Nietzsche takes creativity, uh, you know, the will to create as the salient difference, uh, or one of the most salient differences, uh, you know, between the, the people of the future, uh, and the, the present herd, uh, what, what in Emerson stops him from, from making that, uh, you know, resisting turning creativity into something all, cause he, he accepts almost the Kantian notion of genius as this ineffable quality uh, that, you know, we can't really explain why an artwork that was created out of genius is genius. It's just brilliant. And that's the kind of aesthetic quality that goes into something like that. Uh, but what commitment does he have to to say that that's not a salient difference or, or, or something? Because it, it seems like we could say everyone receives equally, but not everyone creates and then pick one of those two things. Uh, it's a great question. I, I think that... Um... Emerson's relationship to other thinkers uh, as one of the most widely read and, and, and intellectuals of his age, uh, there's a, a strange tension between the inspiration we find in other authors and the way in which we rely on them to produce. There's no reception without production somewhere, right? But uh, one of the thoughts, I, uh, I think he, he, he clearly worries in a lot of his essays that rather than not listening to them enough, we sometimes listen to them too much. We defer too much to other people's thoughts, and we use them as sort of crutches for ourselves. The first words of his first publication, his essay, uh, famous earlier essay, Nature, um, uh, he says this, our age is retrospective. It builds the sepulchers of the fathers. It writes biographies, histories, and criticism. The foregoing generations beheld God and nature face to face. We, through their eyes, why should not we also enjoy an original relation to the universe? So I think he worries in an age, and of course we're in 1840, it's grown far worse by 2021 as we pile, as we continue to build the, the pyramids of knowledge that we have and the, the, the vast number of publications that are out there that we have to interact with. And to be a scholar or an academic today is to be, as immersed in the history of things other people have written as anything else. Um, but even in his age, he's worried that we're, we're, we're a little too pious to these other thinkers. We are a little too deferential to them. And so he writes about nature, suggesting like they beheld nature and they wrote about it. We follow on and we study, we don't study nature, we study them. Uh, he's very much in, in, insistent, I think, that part of self-reliance, part of intellectual self-reliance is to be is to liberate ourselves from a kind of mental servitude to all these great thinkers. And yet, when he's writing the essay on intellect, he gives Shakespeare as the example of the person we might be surprised to find as our, our uh, as uh, an equal. And in, in another uh, work of his called Representative Men, he has sort of seven 
people famous for representing um, certain kinds of, of certain character types. And Shakespeare is the example of the poet, uh, sort of the, the emblem of, of the poet, who's maybe the greatest of these characters for, for uh, Emerson. So there is a deep love and a deep appreciation and something in, that he's personally found in these authors, but he also recognizes There's another essay, I'm forgetting which one it is, where he says, we've Shakespeareized for too long, or we've Shakespeareized for centuries. And it's sort of, it's been, so he's not telling you don't read Shakespeare, but he's saying, don't only read Shakespeare. And he tells it, he's, and he does say the same thing toward the end of intellect uh, when he talks about Aeschylus. Um, he says on the second to last page of the essay, uh, entire self-reliance belongs to the intellect. Uh, and then a couple lines further down, he says, if Aeschylus be the man that he has taken for the Greek tragic poet, if Aeschylus be the man he has taken for, he has not yet done his office when he has educated the learned of Europe for a thousand years. He is now to approve himself a master, a master of delight to me also. If he cannot do that, all his fame shall avail him nothing with me. And I don't think what he means here is, eh, if Aeschylus doesn't speak to you, then maybe he's not that good. Uh, I think what he means, though, is there are, we all have moments like this where we encounter some great thinker that we're supposed to, we know there is some important figure in the canon of Western civilization or something like that, and you read it and it just leaves you cold. And I don't think Emerson is saying, well, then just throw it out. But I think he is saying, don't, you don't need to bow down before that. If it's not speaking to you now, try to pick something else up. Uh, he says, if um, he has not succeeded, now let another try. If Plato cannot, perhaps Spinoza will. If Spinoza cannot, perhaps Kant. Um, but you don't owe this sort of deference to these, to these thinkers. Um, and so there's, there's, there is always that tension. We, we learn by being receptive to the thoughts of great minds but we have to trust, ultimately, it has to speak to us. And ultimately, we need some experience with, with nature. And that means not just sort of hikes in the woods, but, but simply with the external reality of the world beyond the world of scholarship and books. The difference with Nietzsche, I think, is a really um, interesting one. And I think what you were, uh, what you were noting, noting where, where Nietzsche puts so much emphasis on, on the intellect creative or constructive, creativity is so essential. And in a way, it's secondary in Emerson. I think it's a very good observation about something that, that uh, uh, one of the important ways that they differ, though they have uh, a great amount in, uh, in common. And, and uh, Nietzsche calls Emerson one of the four great writers of the 19th century. And he and if you you uh, you can actually they have it in the Nietzsche archives in Weimar Germany. They've got. Um, uh, uh, they've got a you can get a look at a copy of uh, Nietzsche's copy of Emerson's essays, and you can see his marks in the mar in the marginalia with exclamation points and yeah yeah I like there's just sort of this enthusiastic engagement with Emerson. But one thing that I think is plainly a very big difference between them is their metaphysics. For Emerson, thoughts are out there in the universe, um, uh, and for and it's it's just sort of like something that is above us all. It's above Plato. It's above Shakespeare. It's above me. And all of us sort of reaching for it, but there is, he said, the, the, the first essay of this, uh, the first series of essays in which uh, intellect is published is called History. And the opening lines of it, he says, there is one mind, there is one mind common to all individual men, uh, to all individual men. Every man is an inlet to the same and to all of the same. He that is once admitted to the right of reason is made a free man of the whole estate. What Plato has thought, he may think. What a saint has felt, he may feel, and so on. Uh, all the every thought is somehow outside of all of us, and it's a thing we try to access, and we use one another in ways to help us do that. 
Nietzsche did not did not agree with that view. The thought there's no such thing as a thought without a thinker for Nietzsche. The thought is inside of you, and what that means is what I'm thinking and what you're thinking, though there may be, it's not as if he didn't think we could speak to one another or read things and understand what other people were saying, but there's something fundamentally different about the experience of thinking. And when I'm having a thought that you're, that I think you're having, what we're doing is actually two very different things in ways that make it hard sometimes to understand one another. And as a result, the, what it means to be self-reliant, what it means to, to have intellect has to be creative for Nietzsche because there is no, there, there's an external world, but there's no metaphysical world of ideas or truths that we're trying to access. It has to be, it all has to be a construction within the individual. For Emerson, I think it can be more a pious reception because it's all out there waiting to be discovered. Um, and that's, so they're both interested in, in what I would call a kind of a, something like autonomy. But for Emerson, autonomy and, and self-reliance comes through an encounter with things outside of ourselves. And we and it's by adopting those or internalizing them or having an authentic experience of them that we become self-reliant rather than dependent. For Nietzsche, the task is harder uh, because there's no there's no out there out there that what what we have to do in fact is be much on a, on a deeper level, I think self-generating to be autonomous then is to give it's it's not to receive law, it's to give law. Uh, and I think that's a very important difference. There's all kinds of fascinating differences. It's, it's one of the things that's really fascinating to me in thinking about Nietzsche and Emerson is that they do both value something in the, the, the idea of self-reliance as an intellectual project, I think is, is very important to both of them. They mean some, somewhat different things, but there's a lot of commonality there. The big difference is, and it may relate to what you've just observed, the big difference is they don't agree about who can do it. Uh, Emerson is constantly telling us this is closer to you than you realize, and you have this capacity. He's sort of pained that people are living hollow lives and returning to others to do their thinking for them and kind of depending, conforming to social norms and, and worried about what other people think of them. And he's saying, you can do this. You can, you, can, you can be a thinker, and you can be Shakespeare's equal. Nietzsche, I think, looks at, at that and says... Ralph Waldo, Waldo it was actually what he went by. Uh, that's you, that's me, that's philosophers. It's a, and we're sort of strange. We're not like other people. There's something in, it's a rare type that actually cares about these kinds of experiences and has a capacity to have these kinds of experiences. And again, it's because Emerson thinks fundamentally, there's no reason why a thought that I can have would be a thought you can't have. There's nothing different about us and there's nothing that changes in the idea between us such that if you can, if you can connect to it in some way, there's no reason I can't draw my own line and find my own path to it. But for Nietzsche, the experience of thinking is fundamentally different. And for some people it's, it's shallower for some people. It's less rich. Some people, he says, they just don't feel the heat of an idea subjectively the way you and I do. And when you're expecting Hamlet or Othello, when you expect that liquid eloquence or your own liquid eloquence to find its way into their subjective experience, what you're going to find is there isn't more to people than meets the eye. There's less. And they're not capable of because they're just not like you. So there's a much more pluralistic Nietzsche there, which means, strangely, Nietzsche is far less inclined. He's inclined to sort of goad the people that he thinks are capable of this, not to be sort of pulled back to the level of the common man, 
But Nietzsche is not inclined to berate common people for being common people. He says, look, let's you know, take, uh, uh, let the great ones test themselves for independence, but don't expect it of ordinary people. But Emerson, kind of like Socrates, is wandering around democratic society and kind of grabbing people by the coat and, saying, and shaking them and saying, why aren't you doing this? And Nietzsche's thought is in some ways kinder. It's leave them alone. They can't. Um, and it's a dark thought about humanity. But it's also in some ways, if, if he's right, it's more humane. If he's wrong, he's foreclosing on the higher capacities of, of other people. And one of the hardest questions to ask, I think, is who's, who's right about this? How do we know what other people's subjectivity is capable of attaining? It's a much harder question than most people take it to be. One of the um, connections that really, really stood out to me throughout reading this um, and I couldn't uh, find anything on it when I, I was searching because evidently uh, Emerson lived in uh, St. Augustine, Florida. But um, uh, th throughout this, uh, St. Augustine's particularly uh, on the teacher stood out to me in just what you were saying about <clears throat> the internalizing uh, of worldly experience, the, the drawing on introspection based off of... Uh, the empirics of, uh, of communal life and learning from one another and capturing sort of the spark of amazement or, or wonderment that, that has a miraculous quality uh, to it. It's not, doesn't seem, neither for Emerson or St. Augustine so much that in reception, our, our mind is doing the raw processing power of, of coming up with the, these insights. It's, it's somewhat of a gift you 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 stumble upon. Um, it re it requires preparation, training. Uh, as he says at the beginning, uh, you you have to to sow the seeds. Um, but but it's not up to you per se when you reap uh, reap that. And I, I I thought that was interesting and beautiful. And and he does use religious uh, language for this. Um, uh, discussing every man being the receiver of the descending Holy Ghost, that is, Holy Ghost as, as sort of um, metaphor, it, it seems, uh, of uh, thought and intellect and uh, recognition, recognition uh, for Emerson, which, which again, very, very similar to, to St. Augustine there. The, the, the one other thing um, about what you were just saying in terms of whether fundamentally Emerson or, or Nietzsche is more more uh, accurate in terms of people's capacities I was struck and, and it seemed like uh, Emerson was, was trying to sweeten this bitter pill a little bit but it, for Emerson the, the idea of a, a scholar I, I, it's not clear to me if a scholar is particularly distinct from poet if these are just different um iterations of, of the the uh, creative uh, intellect of, of the genius but um th this isn't an easy easy task and, and it seemed reminiscent of, of, of how um how how much Nietzsche warns of, of the difficulties of, of trying to be a philosopher the uh, serious serious challenges uh, Emerson writes a self-denial no less austere than the saints is demanded of this scholar. He must worship truth and forgo all things for that and choose defeat and pain so that his treasure and thought is thereby augmented. 
and he continues a little bit on this theme, but it seems to kind of elide uh, that there's sort of two poles in life, two choices you get. One, one's uh, truth, one's repose, one's comfort. And he, he talks about how um, the, the choice of comfort tends to have you fall in the footsteps of your father, tends to come with uh, respect, uh, resources, rest, and all these pleasurable things that shut the door of truth and prevent you from, from truly being a, a thinker. But he seems to, to alight a little bit uh, where Nietzsche is very explicit about how the other choice isn't just a choice to avoid comfort, that there's serious discomfort in rejecting each of those things, a serious alienation, it's, it, it seems to me, or, or, or isolation. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't know quite, quite what to make of that. It's, it's, it's very hard to know what to make of it, but it's, it, it lends a certain credibility. In, in moments like this where Emerson is candid about the, the rigors of thinking, and not just the rigors in terms of how, your analytical apparatus, you need to do it well. I don't think he thinks that's so important uh, or that we all have enough of that to be able to do the thinking we need for ourselves because thinking, again, it's more experiential. It's not just about it's not processing power, it's, it's experience. Um, but it does have deeply unsettling tendencies. I mean, there are moments in which there's a couple of other essays that I think are more radical than intellect in describing the, the way that thinking is a kind of perpetual self-destruction and self-recreation um, and, and the ways in which it can leave you kind of cold and humbled or something like that. Uh, one is the essay circles, uh, and it's it's a, a thought that actually it's, it's interesting. He he begins this essay, I think, almost with a reference to I don't a, a reference to the same idea when he talks about intellect as something that dissolves everything else. It's a, it's it's um, the, the universal solvent, and what that suggests is, uh, in doing it, we take a great risk with ourselves. Uh, we anytime we reflect deeply on our values, on our beliefs, on our identity, on anything about ourselves, there's the danger that something is going to change and we're not going to be the same afterwards. He says uh, in the, I think what is probably his most radical essay about kind of intellectual experience is an essay called Circles. Uh, and it's another essay I love very deeply and Nietzsche did too. Um, and he says in it, uh, something like this. He says, beware when the great God lets loose a thinker on this earth, then all things are at risk. And he says, it's as, as when a conflagration breaks out, a great fire breaks out in a city, and no man knows what will stand and what will burn. And that's a radical thought about what, I, it's a beautiful thought. It's a thought that I think Nietzsche quotes in, in an essay that he, he wrote at one point. And it's, and I think it's it's the thing that Emerson has such a knack for doing is saying something that we almost never think about and which is just obviously true, that thinking is dangerous in that way. It, uh, it, it has any time we don't think about something, we know we're going we're gonna to believe the same thing tomorrow we thought today. But as soon as we challenge it, as soon as we criticize, as soon as we start thinking about it, maybe it'll stand, maybe it'll burn. If what you're doing is authentically thinking, you can't prejudge the answer to that question. So it means you're taking a risk with your identity, your whole sense of self, 
and that's why it's in some ways the dissolver of uh, the, the solvent of personality. Uh, your personality itself, your, 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 who you are, is at risk when you think. I think Nietzsche knows that and says people don't want that. Most people, some of some people want that. Some people are prepared for that. But you're talking about a kind of a kind of risk with oneself that most people most people want. You talk about there. You, you you can have truth or you can have repose or comfort. Uh, take whichever you please. You do, you can't have both. Emerson says. And Nietzsche, I think Nietzsche tells us people, most people will choose repose, or maybe what Nietzsche is actually saying is not people will choose repose, because if that were true, you could try to persuade them to choose truth. I think what Nietzsche would actually tell us is people don't choose repose. Repose chooses people. It's in them. It's in their drives. It's in their something in the way that they're hardwired. And you're trying to persuade you're you're trying to, to persuade somebody to be something that they are not. And what this means is, I think Nietzsche is the greater theorist of human diversity than Emerson. And we don't turn to Emerson for a theory of diverse, a deep theory of diversity. There is a theory of diversity in here that he says every mind has its own method. The way you get to an idea and the way I get to an idea will not be the same, which is why I can't just defer to a book and let it tell me to how how to have a thought. It's why I have to trust my instinct. I have to follow my own inner path. And, and let it follow where it leads if it's going to be genuinely my own idea. And that does suggest a theory of human difference and human, some kind of human diversity. But I think for Emerson, most of that is, it's because we have different experiences. We've, we have different stores of knowledge in our heads and different things that are interacting. We, we are a different collection of facts in interaction with something that we read. So it's the, the subjective path through all of those thoughts, the sequencing is gonna be different for all of us. But I don't know that Emerson has a deep theory that beyond that, we are funda- we have fundamentally different drives or we have fundamentally different needs as human beings. And I think Nietzsche is committed to the idea that what I need and what you need are two fundamentally different things. And some people just need comfort. And some people, all they want out of life is to be, to be comforted. Um, and so there's something unusual about a thinker. There's one other passage in Emerson that I, I think of sometimes when I see Emerson really reckoning with the, the, the dangers of thinking is a passage in his essay, Experience, when he talks about uh, the death of his son. His son and namesake, uh, Waldo, died of scarlet fever when he was five, uh, and it was devastating to Emerson. Uh, and he, he writes of it two years later in this essay called Experience. And he says, and, and it's just, you know, here he was, a kind of happy, laughing boy, and then he got sick, and a couple of days later, he was dead. And just like that, he was gone. And he writes about it in really strangely, it sometimes strikes people as very cold, the way he writes about it two years later. But I think that's a mistake. What he says is, uh, two years later, it's fallen away from me and left no scar. He said, it was, uh, it was, it has, um, uh, it, it ha- I can't get it any nearer to me anymore. That experience of terrible grief. Uh, that he uh, absolutely went through, which we know from uh, reports of his friends and all sorts of that. He was, it was um, a terrible loss for him. Uh, but he says a couple of years later, it's almost like nothing happened. Uh, and he's not saying that, eh, like, I don't really care that much anymore. What he says is, I grieve that I can grieve no more. And he says, our thoughts and our experiences are are like the rain that falls off our raincoats. It, it, we shed all of it and nothing stays. And he says of that, this is the most unhandsome part of our condition. And what it is, to, so what it is to experience grief, but also what it is to think 
is to have thoughts that are constantly fleeting and being replaced by other things. And it, and what it means to say that it dissolves personality is not that it just changes you, but in some ways it thins out your sense of pers- personhood because you are a thing that is in that is flowing and and never quite experiencing the solidity of a person with, with fixed character. It's why I think at the start of the essay on on intellect. When he says intellect dissolves fire, gravity, laws, method, and the subtlest unnamed relations of nature, he adds the phrase, in its resistless menstruum, it's a, 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 a flow that never stops. Uh, and, it's, um, and, and, and Nietzsche describes it in a very similar way. He calls it the way the life of the Ganges or something like that. It's life as sort of a river. He says that's not, that's not a normal perspective, and most people need a little more sense of who they are and are not prepared to be constantly unsettled. Um, uh, Emerson wants us to be... So Emerson, the weird thing in Emerson is that he, there are moments, breakthrough moments in which he tells us what a radical act thinking is. And then he says, why are you, why are you all not doing this? And Nietzsche's response, I think, is they don't want to. It's not, it's, and it's not just they don't want to, it's not who they are. Uh, it's it's an unusual thing to be like that and to want that kind of risk with yourself. And it seems like that that uh, intellectual river, so to speak, it, well, well, both incredibly disorienting. Um, there, Emerson, both both theologically and philosophically, seems to have a sense of universalism uh, alongside the egalitarianism. It, it, it seems like... Well, well uh, another point in, in the essay, uh, he writes, Jesus says, leave father, mother, house, and lands, and follow me. Who leaves all receives more. This is as true intellectually as morally. Each new mind we approach seems to require an abdication of all our past and present possessions. A new doctrine seems, at first, a subversion of our opinions, tastes, manner of living. And so, as we've been saying it, this first step is a difficult relinquishment. It is very much an ascetic sort of life. But then it seems like Emerson's somewhat agnostic as as to where one turns uh, for for truth, uh, what sort of thinkers one should be grappling with? It, it seems like that there's a, a universalism uh, to this philosophical value. I, he names a few few uh, different thinkers and continues: take thankfully and heartily all they can give, exhaust them, wrestle with them, let them not go until their blessing be won. And after a short season, the dismay will be overpassed, the excess of influence withdrawn, and they will be no longer an alarming meteor but one more bright star shining serenely in your heaven and blending its light with all your day. And, and, and that's an image of a, a very, very much a, a perennial philosophy to me, a, a, a quilt work of all, all these minds sort of, sort of engaged in the same, same project, um, which, which is fascinating. And I, I don't know if I find that complementary to or at, odds with, with Nietzsche's uh, take on, on, on similar themes. Um, but, but man, throughout this, the prose is just, is, is beautiful. It, this is fun to read. Uh, yeah, I, I don't, I, I think I see tension 
Well, I see. No, I, I see one thing similar and one thing separate from Nietzsche. I, I, the thought that there is sort of a band of thinkers um, who to whom we don't defer, but whom with whom the conversation is most productive. Again, I think. I mean, I think that's there's probably some recognition of that in Nietzsche. There, they've they've read a lot of the same authors. Certainly, they've they've they're they're both uh, students of the classical world. Certainly, um, and they're they've both found the readings of those ancient works and other more modern works as well, sort of constantly rewarding and something that's that that helps get them to where they are. But I do think, again, because Nietzsche doesn't think of those as ideas that are out there in the universe waiting for us to land on or to uh, to, to kind of dial in with our antenna, but rather experiences of someone foreign to us that nudge something that is personal to us. But those things, there's a sense in Nietzsche that those things, I think, never quite meet. You never quite have somebody else's idea. And so that it takes on, I think, a different significance. But what I do think they both see is, I, I, I think the thought that's in the, the part that you just read, you, you go through this sequence of, of readers and each one of them uh, seems to require an abdication of our past and present possessions. Each time, we, we all as, as thinkers or scholars have these moments. Emerson was one of them or has probably repeatedly been one of them throughout my life where I just started reading him and I think I need to read all of this again. And you fall under his spell for a little while and I think what Emerson is saying is that's okay. Like take extract everything out of it and have that experience and know that, you know, a, a, a few a months from now you'll have moved past it and you'll be having that experience with something else. And, and Emerson will have slipped into the background. And I think that's something that that's a little bit of that, uh, the way of the Ganges or the way of the, the, the sort of the, the ever flowing intellect that always and and it's 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 the idea that comes out in Emerson's essay circles and the idea of circles is around every experience we have a new circle can be drawn it's sort of like ripples when you throw a stone into a pond everything that feels like you've arrived at something this is what I think it's unsettling to realize later that was just a phase you were going through or that was just a step along the way and I think Emerson and Nietzsche both acknowledge that and both acknowledge it is central to the act of, of serious thinking is to recognize that everything every every intellectual experience can be encircled by another one in, in some kind of way and again it's it's what makes it a little bit peculiar that emerson wants to attribute this uh, i i don't know that he always connects the dots between his most democratic moments and his most unsettling moments about what intellect is i think this is the essay where he gets closest though where he's suggesting you are the equal of all of these other thinkers but when he says you you're the you 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 might find a, an equal in shakespeare he isn't describing the darkest things in Shakespeare in that moment. He's just describing sort of the liquid eloquence we find in Hamlet and Othello, but he's not talking about the things that are most dark and unsettling in Shakespeare or that are most dark and unsettling in some of the other authors that we read. And somewhere later in the essay, as he's no longer talking about our great equality, he starts telling us about sort of what is demanded of uh, someone who, who really wishes to be a thinker. Um, and it may be that those end up in slightly different places in Emerson's essays, because it's not easy to make the case that something that asks this much of us personally is also something we should expect to be a mass experience. Um, but he says, uh, again, in that essay circles, 
where he talks about that kind of just constantly says uh, life is a series of surprises and uh, all of our intellectual experience, something new comes along and unsettles them. And the line I love in that essay, one of the many lines I love in that essay, he says, people wish to be settled only as far as they are unsettled. Is there any hope for them? And I think that's probably true. But the, uh, at the heart of the democratic question in, in Emerson's optimism is, can you ask people or can you ex- is it reasonable to expect people to want to be unsettled so much? Uh, it is certainly not what I think of as a normal way of, of being in the world to be constantly unsettled and, 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 and to be comfortable with being uncomfortable in that kind of way. Um, and that's why I think Nietzsche, that's why I think there's something, though it's problematic in ways, there's something very compelling about the anti-democratic strain in, in uh, which is extremely prominent in Nietzsche. The, the thought that this isn't, if this is what thinking is, it's not a, it's not an, it's not a thing we should associate with, with equality. It's a thing we should associate with something very peculiar about certain kinds of people. Uh, and it may be, that's, and it's, it may be a case for thinking that, there's, there's a hierarchy that there's people who are capable of this are capable of a richer and fuller life than people who just wish to be settled and comforted. But, uh, and, and I do think Nietzsche thinks that is a hierarchy and it's a, and that he thinks it's valuable to think of it that way, but it's, it's, it would be surprising if, if you could imagine a world in which most people live more that way. Yeah. I, the way I, when he's talking about kind of relinquishing your, you know, possessions, I, the way I read that was um, <clears throat> kind of uh, anticipating this hermeneutic idea where uh, to be to be you know to be open to a text, you need to be willing to assume that it's true, which if it's challenging the way you're thinking means you also have to be willing to assume that kind of everything you hold dear is false. Um, otherwise, otherwise you couldn't possibly open to be open to uh, reaching an understanding with that text. Um, the Emerson uses the word thought or inner intellect, which colloquially captures a lot of things. And we, we in conversation use it to, to describe, um, kind of any cognitive processes or whatever. He seems to have, um, a notion that there's, uh, thinking done rightly and this other stuff. Uh, where he talks about hyper-specialization at one point, um, where, let me just pull this text out, how wearisome the grammarian, the phrenologist, the political religious, religious fanatic, or indeed any possessed mortal whose balance is lost by the exaggeration of a single topic is incipient insanity. Every thought is a prison also. I cannot see what you see because I'm caught up by a strong wind and blown so far in one direction that I am out of the hoop of your horizon. Um, which, which... Uh, to me has to do with the dissolving property of intellect at the beginning. Um, the idea that uh, when you approach the world in a, a, a certain way, trying to get something out of it, you foreclose all of these other possibilities that the world has to disclose to you. Uh, or, or I think I'm importing some concepts in here, but um, but what, what's Emerson's idea of, uh, thinking done properly? How, uh, how can we think without doing violence to the world by uh, obliterating so much of the world through, uh, laser focus on one single thing? 
but then he also talks about another error, which is to uh, kind of mathematically accumulate all of these different definitions so that by aggregating them, uh, you achieve the ultimate definition and then understand uh, you understand the world by doing that. Uh, those are those are two errors into which thought can slip. Uh, how is thought properly achieved between those two errors? Uh, it's a great question. I was, I was reading this last night and thinking I need to email this to a student of mine who's trying to, I think, conquer the world by writing everything comprehensively into an eight-page paper. Um, right before those passages where he talks about the danger of uh, kind of excessive singularity and 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 um, the, the incipient insanity of being trapped in a, a single idea and and the sort of rage to conquer everything and canvas the whole and somehow collect it all in a way that just won't be collected. Uh, what he says just leading into that um, is the intellect is a whole and demands integrity in every work. And then he says that's resisted equally by a man's devotion to a single thought and by his ambition to combine too many. But I don't know that the answer is somehow trying to find it, it's this is not these are not the the uh, extremes between which we're trying to find some kind of Aristotelian mean necessarily. It's that the whole the the the, the singularity is a distortion because we've somehow lost our spontaneous connection to the idea in the the desire to somehow sort of master it and the same have and it's it might be almost the same phenomenon when you're trying to think about too many things you're trying to somehow conquer something and what that's doing is shutting down your receptivity to the, the the moment and the intellectual experience you're in i think the answer to it is not some median about just the right number of things that we should be trying to think about i think his answer to it is spontaneity uh and he says it's it's throughout uh all throughout this essay is the notion of instinct and spontaneity and thinking um and it relates, that relates to what uh, Brad was noting before. I think maybe the sort of strangest and most beautiful aspect of this essay is just the meditation on what a strange thing thinking is at all, that we, we're just sort of here and these thoughts keep coming through our heads and we don't really know where they come from and we don't really know why, but you can't not have them and you don't know which ones are coming next. And he sort of suggests you can try to master it and you can try to control it. And I think that's the mistake that he sees in both the excess singularity and the, the excess expansiveness. You're trying to master something that you have to let come in, 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 in its own way and in its own times. And that's not to say you can't induce it in ways. When you, when you read a great book or when you sit silently and listen to someone speak or when you take a walk in nature and you just open yourself up to experience you're creating pathways in and there's other activities we can engage in intentionally or just sort of passively or unreflectively that close the door on a lot of that and, and a lot of our um for in other essays he talks about sort of all the artificial substances we use, alcohol and opium and things like that, that we think are going to create some sort of experience for us. And he says, they're all, they're all ways of trying to fix something that, and you don't get the real thing through it. Um, but he says that the growth, uh, the growth of the intellect is spontaneous in every expansion. The mind that grows could not predict the times, the means, the mode of that spontaneity. God enters by a private door into every individual. And what it means is there's no amount of mastery of the effort to conquer your thoughts or something. It's not, it's not how they come. And he's, so he says, uh, in the most worn, pedantic, introverted self-tormentor's life, the greatest part 
is incalculable by him, unforeseen, unimaginable, and must be until he can take himself up by his own ears, which is an interesting phrase. But he says, what am I? What has my will done to make me that I am? Nothing. I have been floated into this thought, this hour, this connection of events by secret currents of might and mind. And my ingenuity and willfulness have not thwarted, have not aided to an appreciable degree. All your attempt to will yourself to some kind of understanding is not how it comes. Uh, and that's the, that's the mistake that is the same, I think, in both of those two errors that you described. So he says our spontaneous action is always the best. And he says uh, on the next page, if we consider what persons have stimulated and profited us, we shall perceive the superiority of the spontaneous or intuitive principle over the arithmetical or logical. It's the people who are thinking on their feet and, in, and whom when we sit sort of silent and listen, uh, or in conversation perhaps, we, we hear them thinking on their feet and we hear the experience of thinking being described from their own heads. It's very different than somebody who has laid out a series of propositions as some sort of recipe for having a thought. I think it's sort of like the, the, the trying to get it. And this is in some ways a, could be a basis for a critique of analytic philosophy. And it's one of the reasons why analytic philosophers tend to despise Emerson or tend to think of him as kind of a, a soft and, and, and un, really unimportant thinker. But I think he has, I think there's something in this. Uh, if what we take to be important is not the means by which we, we explain the, the, the truthful properties of, of, of a claim, but rather what it is to have an experience of that truth. Uh, and it may just be that there, these are different goals between Emerson and the analytic philosophers. But to, to me, and I think to Emerson, trying to have a thought by reading a list of sort of in steps or instructions that get you analytically to the truth of the thought it's like somebody cooking a dinner and a really nice meal. And you say, you know, I don't have time to eat. Well, can you just text me the recipe and I'll read it later. Uh, at some point that you can't, that doesn't substitute. You can't, or, or trying to, trying to experience a Beethoven symphony by reading the sheet music. And if you're Beethoven and you were deaf, maybe you could do that. I think he could hear, if you have the, the genius, you can probably hear the symphony in your head. Or if I just look at, well, okay, the violins are doing this and the, you know, the, Piccolo is doing that. Okay, so this part's here. Like, you can't read that and have the experience. And I think that's what he thinks we're doing when we reduce thinking to a series of logical propositions. We're making it transparent in a way. We're making it, and in a way, we're making it accessible. But the problem is the thing that we're making accessible is not really thinking. It's knowledge of a thought, but it's not actually thinking. And that's why he says, I think the people who, who stimulate us the most, the people who profit us the most, are not the people who can put on a PowerPoint presentation, here are the five steps that make this claim true, but rather the, the ones who, who can kind of explain it in a way that enters it into, helps us receive it into our sub, subjective experience. Um, and this is, by the way, I think why most analytic philosophers don't teach the way that they write. They do to some extent and, and varying extents across different people, but there's, there's value in what they do. There's value in just methodically going through and rigorously explaining how do you verify, how do you, how do you find verification of a claim? But all the steps of verification don't help somebody, don't necessarily help somebody to know it. So when you go into a classroom and you teach, there's a different way of trying to have help somebody have a subjective experience of something that you can lay out the steps, but it's usually not by just saying, here's the, here's the five or seven or 13 steps that make this claim true. That doesn't necessarily do the trick for people yet. Um, but yeah, I think what the, the, his advice then 
is give yourself space and give yourself time. And the other thing that is, I think, implicitly critiqued, or at least what you could use this essay and this thought in Emerson to, in, in order to critique, is a lot of the structure of modern democratic, or we might say maybe modern democratic capitalist life. Uh, one of the things that's very clear is it takes time. You want to have a thought. You can't say, okay, I've got 20 minutes. I want to have this thought before. The, if you try to write that way and you try to squeeze all of your writing into little windows in your day, think, okay, I'm going to power through three paragraphs in this 15 minutes that I've got here. You can't write something of, it's very hard to write something of value under those kind of, of, of time constraints. And it's something that I, in working with students on their writing at Lewis and Clark, a question they often have is, how do I write more efficiently? How do I write more quickly? How do I, you know, it took me three days to write this paper. How do I do that in, you know, it's only five pages. How did it, what do I have to do to be able to produce it more quickly? And my answer is always, you don't. Uh, three, three days is not enough. You need to slow down because there needs to be a phase of incubation and a phase of, of kind of putting, you put yourself in a position to be receptive. And sometimes you sit at your computer and, and, and it just doesn't come. And we've all, anybody who's tried to write knows the experience of like, you can't just sit down and tell your brain, okay, start producing words and expect it just to come. You can kind of turn it on. I mean, there's, there's a way you can, you sometimes can, and sometimes have to, you take a fine, you, you take a blue book exam in a class. You can't say at the end of it, sorry, nothing came. I need a little more time. Like you, you have to suddenly it's, it's sort of magical how under those time pressures, sometimes you can produce things. But there's a passage that I love that really describes in some ways, the experience of writing a, 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 a paper for a class. Uh, he says, what is the hardest task in the world to think? I would put myself in the attitude to look in the eye and abstract truth. And I cannot, I blench and withdraw and decide on that. And then he sort of says, imagine you try to explore the basis of civil government. He says, an example, you try for the longest time and nothing comes. And he said, well, I'll go for a walk and I'll, 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 maybe it'll come to me then. And you go for a walk and nothing comes. You say, well, okay, I'm going to go sit in the library and I'm going to really, I'm, today I'm going to go to the library. I'm going to sit there all day and I'm going to, and we've all had those days where we go to the library and at the end of the day, you're like, what did I even come here for? There's nothing, nothing happened. But then he says this, then in a moment and unannounced, the truth appears. A certain wandering light appears and is the distinction, the principle we wanted. And then the line I love, but the oracle comes because we had previously laid siege to the shrine. It's all that time that felt like it was wasted. It wasn't wasted. It was, it was the creation of the conditions of receptivity. You can't force it to come, but you can put yourself in circumstances that make it almost inevitable. And it, it comes of something comes to you because you had previously laid siege to the shrine. But what that means is thinking requires spaciousness. It requires time. It requires leisure. Uh, it requires the very conditions, the conditions that make it pop, that, that make it possible for everybody to participate are also the conditions, the economic conditions, basically, with just the structure of time in our days in, in modern economic life. Uh, it pushes it, all the things that Emerson is trying to pull back into our lives. The way we live pushes right back out because we don't grant ourselves that kind of space um, for, the, for that kind of receptivity is not something you can power through in 15 minutes. You've got to uh, you've got to create a you have to build a life around its possibility and it's harder to do today than I think it was in, in 1841 so uh, we, should, we should probably get toward wrapping up now there there's two things uh, hopefully briefly like to, to hit on first um, 
and mostly just because we have, haven't mentioned it yet, and I, I think it always bears um, reflecting on, on epigraphs uh, when you get to the end of, of an essay. Uh, Emerson starts out with a beautiful uh, stanza of verse, Go speed the stars of thought onto their shining goals. The sower scatters broad his seed, the wheat thou strewest he souls. And the the, I I, I think listeners should just ju- just reflect on, on that a bit. Um, I I don't want to unpack it, but um, the first time I had read this essay, uh, my my takeaway was that this was. Uh, profoundly democratic, profoundly egalitarian. And I, I was talking to Will prior to this. Uh, the second time uh, I read it, I, I felt the, the total opposite, uh, that, that, it, that it had a very aristocratic sense, sense of thinking and, and, and hierarchy seemed very important. And, and we've been, been going back and forth on this throughout. Um, but the last paragraph is fascinating. Um, and there, there's so much there, um, but Emer- Emerson says, I will not, though the subject might provoke it, speak to the open questions between truth and love. I shall not presume to interfere in the old politics of the skies. The cherubim knows most, the fer- seraphim love most. The gods shall settle their own quarrels. And he continues and speaks of a class of men who he refers to as prophets and oracles, the high priesthood of pure reason. Uh, These being, as mentioned earlier, uh, Hermes, Heraclitus, Empodocles, Plato, Plotinus, um, and more. He continues throughout this paragraph. It's very much worth uh, listeners going and reading to this. Um, But he, the very last sentence, um, he, he remarks that the angels are so enamored of the language that is spoken in heaven that they will not distort their lips with the hissing and unmusical dialects of men, but speak their own, whether there be any who understand it or not. And now it, it doesn't seem to me that he's, nece- he's referring to Heraclitus and Plato and Plotinus as angels. They, they seem to be... The prophets and oracles speaking to these angels. But there's both this tension between whether love uh, or truth is most valuable at at the top of this, I see. And I I don't know if that relates to to the the distinctions between repose and truth or, or, I mean, in my eyes, it, it seems like beauty and truth are very closely connected for Emerson. But there's both that tension up top and going through this, despite throughout this essay, Emerson discussing how the holy ghost of knowledge uh, finds its way into each person, into each soul. He ends with the angels not being willing to speak the language of man because of of how profane it is. Um, And that to me seems... I, that 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 seems much less the, the egalitarian uh, uni- universalist si- side of the, this knowledge and, and seems much more befitting of Nietzsche. I think that's interesting. I always wonder when I get to this last passage, and it's this paragraph that sort of 
it almost feels added on the, the 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 essay in some ways the 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 formal content of the essay ended at the end of the previous paragraph and then he it, he has what feels sort of uh, added on as an almost a little epilogue or something in this final paragraph and i always wonder and i don't know the answer to this whether when he was giving this as a public lecture this last part i'm wondering if this was added for publication because it would be be weird to end a note uh, to end a, an address on the uh, the the capacity of everyone to to be to engage in this pious reception and to have this intellectual experience on a, a, a thought about uh, he says also in this just above what you read about the angels um, who speak their own language and when he's talking I think about the this uh, band of scholars and sages um, he says well assured that their speech is intelligible and the most natural thing in the world they add thesis to thesis without a moment's heed of the universal astonishment of the human race below who do not comprehend their plainest argument. I, that would be a, it's a little bit of an odd mic drop for the end of an address. <laughs> on, on, it's a little bit of an odd note to go out on, I think, in, in an essay that seemed to be leaning. So I think you're absolutely right to note there's a kind of aristocratic component to that. There's two ways of, of reconciling it. One is to suggest, simply to suggest there's a tension in, uh, in Emerson on this point. And there are other moments where he sounds, for moments, deeply pessimistic about people. But I think what, he is, what it usually breaks down into is pessimism about the reality of the way people are living and disappointment. Uh, and disappointment that comes from the part of Emerson that is such an egalitarian. He sees such possibility in people and um, is so disappointed by uh, sort of the failure to live up and to be what they could be. There's a passage, I'm looking for it really quickly here, but it's in the, his essay, The Poet, and I may not be able to, oh yes, here it is. He says, um, he, he's talking about a kind of liberation that comes through experience and, and uh, uh, both aesthetic and intellectual experience. But he says uh, this, and I think it's another one of the, another line that captures for me a lot of the democratic spirit in Emerson. He says, the fate of the poor shepherd who blinded and lost in the snowstorm perishes in a drift within a few feet of his cottage door is an emblem of the state of man on the brink of the waters of life and truth. We are miserably dying. It's right in front of you for the taking. And yet we're, we're drowning on the bank of the river, or we're, we're, we're dying of the thirst on, on the bank of, of the river or perishing in the, the, the few feet from the cottage door. You're so much closer to this than you think. Um, and so I think very often those kind of, those moments of, are, there, there are a lot of moments of disappointment about people, but which do not have anything to do with their capacities. This passage is a little bit strange. And I, I think the other strategy we could take for, for, for trying to reconcile it with his thought is to suggest that what he's describing is a kind of aristocracy for everyone. There is something elite, there is something aristocratic uh, about thinking in that it calls us to a higher self. It calls on us to see ourselves in a conversation that is dismissive and, and uh, trying hard not to take notice of the things going on kind of underneath it. And so for all of us in, in moments where we're having that kind of experience, there's, there's something important about ignoring the, the astonishment of those of the human race below who do not understand the plainest argument. I don't know that he's saying they can't understand that argument, but the experience of thinking in, in the world we're in 
uh, of genuine thinking is sufficiently rare that most of the time when you do it, you're surrounded by people who don't who don't look like that. It may be that he that this is not a way of saying most people are, can't get there. It's a way of saying whenever you get there, it's sporadic. It's something that comes in. It's episodic. It comes in moments. Even those of us at our best, those of us who go into academia and spend our lives thinking we want to live the lives of the, the life of the mind, it's not like we're like this all of the time. But in the moments when you when you're like this, you feel yourself soaring and uh, and distant from other people in the world. Sometimes I think he's trying to encourage that. Uh, I think he's telling us that's what it is to be a thinker. It's not that those other people can't do it, but they're not doing it now. And you and you don't need to speak to them. Stay where you are. You are in the place where you're you're, you're doing what's fulfilling your potential as a person. That's the best shot I've got at that passage. Um, uh, I, if, and if it's not what he means there, I, I do think it's a deeply Emersonian thought. It is, he wants us to remind ourselves not to be dragged down to the common way of living, because all of us have a capacity to, to transcend that kind of commonality. Wonderful. Um, this, again, has been a, a privilege and pleasure for me. Um, Without Professor Hallsworth uh, as a mentor, this project, among many other things, would have never, never happened. So thank you very much for, for joining us, um, and I hope you enjoyed it as well. I absolutely did. It's such, it's such a terrific um, occasion just to, again, this is a text I've read, I've, I've read many times, but I haven't read it as closely and as slowly and had an occasion to just talk about it like this for a long time, and it's, it's always a great pleasure. Thanks so much for having me.